Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, January 26th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global's Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. We get the details of her interview with Premier Jason Kenney on the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline project. Next, we look at an interesting and timely organization which aims to tackle the many myths and misconceptions surrounding COVID-19. We learn all about science up first. It's a growing issue online. Incidents of hate speech and racism happen more than you think on social media. We hear the results of a new poll, which suggests Canadians want the government to step in and address the issue. And finally, he's the secret weapon behind many of Canada's Olympic success stories. We meet Jean-Francois Menard, one of the world's top mental performance coaches and author of the new book, Train Your Brain Like an Olympian. 609 on the morning news. There was a lot to cover on the West Block this week from the resignation of the Governor General to pipeline politics and continued vaccine shortages. Host of the West Block and Global News, Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson joins us now. Good morning to you, Mercedes. Hey, good morning. And I think everybody would know uh, your number one guest this week on the program. If you're from Alberta, it was Premier Jason Kenney on his frustrations over Biden's decision to squash the Keystone XL pipeline. What was your biggest takeaway with your conversation with Jason Kenney? You know, I think that uh, Jason Kenney is not ready to let this go. The, the federal government is saying let it go. Uh, he's not. He doesn't accept um, the outcome of this. He wants to fight for it. He wants to fight for it any number of ways, whether it's uh, trying to go after the U.S. government for it or looking at legal avenues to try to force a review. Um, but that, uh, you know, despite what, what he's being told by Ottawa, um, he believes that there is still potentially a way forward. Now, whether there actually is a way forward is a big question, and, and we don't know the answer to that at this point. Um, but he is certainly dug in uh, on the side of, of wanting to take sort of the extreme end of the action, and by that I mean in particular the trade sanctions, which um, for Canada the United to, to levy against the United States uh, would certainly be a very big deal, especially ahead of Buy America. But he's worried, he says, that this could be the signal of the fate of other pipelines as the U.S. is going to do this not only with Keystone XL, but other pipelines coming from Canada and the United States. And he thinks that the best way to essentially get rid of that harbinger of the future is to hit it hard in the first place. Whether or not that would be effective is a question that experts are talking about right now. Uh, but certainly there was no question coming out of the interview on what the Premier's position is on this. Mercedes, you know, it's a tough one for Jason Kenney because here in Alberta, you know, obviously he believes in what he's talking about, believes in supporting the pipeline, but he also can't afford to take another hit because he's taken so many of them. So he's really got to double down on this. But I mean, is there even any chance that the federal government would, you know, somehow punish the American government for doing this when that's kind of the, you know, the platform he ran on, Um, you know, it was no surprise. Yeah, I mean, I would say 0% chance of the Canadian government doing this for for a few reasons. Number one, um, everybody who was watching the election from about two years out could have told you that this was a likely outcome. Um, When Joe Biden started to appoint his cabinet, he was appointing people who were massive opponents of Keystone XL. So now you have the election promise. And you have the fact that he's surrounded himself with people who very clearly have an opinion on that, which probably is an indicator of what his opinion is on it. Um, And sure enough, he signs it out on the first day in office. Uh, In a way, that was a favor to the Liberal government. I don't mean that as in like a conspiracy theory. It was a setup. It just it made it easier for them 
uh, to say, well, we never had the chance to make the argument instead of having to go to bat for it. Um, but there's no sense from anyone I've talked to at the federal level that they will consider sanctions against the United States, especially ahead of a potential Buy America decision and what sort of uh, trade war that could set off. Um, and secondly, that they believe this is something they can fight hard on because their view is that uh, this was a pipeline that was clearly destined to fail if Biden was elected president and trying to convince him to reverse on something so major that he did it on day one, that fundamental to his platform. They just don't think that there is any chance of success there. Mercedes, uh, one of the other major topics you covered was uh, the resignation of Governor General Julie Payette. And, and I'm wondering if you can give us some sort of an insight with the conversations you've had on the program as far as could this reshape the role of governor general in our nation? And I'm thinking particularly when we've heard a word now that her pension will be over $100,000 per year for the rest of her life after just three years of service. Uh, what are you hearing as we move forward? I think at this point, they'll be a lot more careful with the next governor general, um, a lot more careful about appointing them. And uh, to be very blunt on this one, if they had taken the time to do the due diligence that the media did, they would have found a lot of these things out before they had appointed her. Um, this was not somebody who didn't have red flags in their past. Some folks, you know, you put them in a job and it's almost like they change and there's no warning. There were warning signs with Judy Payette. Um, and they they chose to either ignore them or they didn't know about them. And so what's going to have to happen with the next governor general is they're going to have to be uh, watertight. This can't just be a symbolic appointment to somebody who sounds good. It has to be an appointment of somebody who has the chops to do that job. And you know, it sounds like an easy job where you just go around shaking hands. It's not. It takes a lot of energy and effort to be almost like a royal. Their job is to meet with people, to, to thank people, uh, to spend time with them, to make small talk. And that's sort of one of those things people tend to be really good at or not. And yeah. it was a shock, I think, in part, too, because the last governor general, David Johnston, was about the most lovely person I've ever met. Um, and he was just beloved. No one wanted to see him go. And so it was a real shock when Payette came into that office. Uh, but there's also accountability on that for the government, that early on there was reports of significant problems, and they chose to overlook all of that. Um, and just as under Stephen Harper, we asked questions about his judgment with appointing senators who went rogue. Now people are asking questions about Justin Trudeau's judgment uh, and you know the importance of, of finding somebody who's actually a suitable candidate for that kind of a very important position. Okay, A, is there any chance that Trudeau can pull back her pension and take that away from her, saving us all a little money? And B, give us some of the juice. What was some of the, <laughs> the, the bad stuff that we heard about Julie Payette that the, 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 the Prime Minister obviously just ignored? So on the... On the pension front, um, they could potentially pass legislation that would end it, but that's what they'd have to do because it is automatic after you're the governor general. Um, and by the way, the governor general's expenses are not public, um, and neither are their expenses after office because not only do they get a pension, they actually get an expense account. Um, and the public can't find out what they're spending it on, <sighs> unlike with government ministers where they have to post it every month and people like me go through it looking for things. <laughs> what, what kind of a job gives you an expense account yeah. when you're no longer working there. That's I can't believe that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that is. And, and there was there was uh, quite a bit of controversy over that with another previous governor general. But but that is the deal right now, unless they change the laws. Um, in terms of what was out there, uh, I had certainly heard uh, from 
from folks who had been around Madame Payette uh, in a previous job, as had others, and it was reported uh, in Mont- Montreal that there was issues with workplace behavior there. Uh, and she ended up actually essentially leaving um, with a severance payment. Um, there were uh, charges of second-degree assault, uh, which ended up being stayed in the United States. And then as soon as she got into the job, I started hearing from RCMP protective detail, who I know. Um, this was secondhand, not reportable. They weren't on her detail, but they worked with people on her detail that she would not allow them to look at her. Oh. That she would uh, be quite rude and aggressive with the RCMP when they were trying to do their jobs. She didn't want them around her when she was going for runs. Um, and they're, they're very, very loyal, so they don't want to talk about mm-hmm. this stuff. They did not want to go public. And, of course, uh, CBC, Ashley Burkhor, there did an amazing job of breaking all these stories. Um, but this was like the well-known rumor in Ottawa for well, a long time. She was not a nice person. That, that, that there was, she was not treating staff well. And the other big red flag for us was that Rito Stella Hall, who had been there for their entire careers, started leaving in droves. And these were people that loved their job. Oh. They were extremely easy to work with, highly, highly competent if you're at Rito Hall. Uh, if you suddenly start bleeding competent, excellent, long-term staff, that should probably trigger someone to ask, what's happening? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem like that happened. Just very interesting, and I don't think we've heard the end of this. No. Uh, uh, thank you so much for your time this morning, Mercedes. Thanks for having me. That is Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. 8.43 on the morning news. Wondering how to separate fact from fiction amid the pandemic. A new nationwide initiative called Hashtag Science Up First aims to help people do just that. Tim Caulfield, the research director with the Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta, joins us now with details. Good morning to you, Tim. Good morning. Tell us about the group behind Hashtag Science Up First. Who is in this group? This is a, this is a group of of researchers, of science communicators, of clinicians from all across, all across uh, Canada. And and we're really coming together to try to battle misinformation. And as you know, misinformation has become a huge problem. It's one of the defining issues of our time, uh, I think. Mm -hmm. And, and this, this initiative, you know, science up first is really designed to, to tackle that, but, but more importantly, we really want to start a movement. We want to get Canadians involved. So this is really going to be sort of a user-driven, uh, a user, user-driven initiative. We want people to go to Facebook, to go to Twitter, to go to Instagram and, and sign up to the, to the program and help us spread good content, good science-informed content about COVID. Tim, why didn't you do this a year ago? We could have used you back then, but I, you know, honestly, in, in all honesty, better late than never because we really, there's so much misinformation out there and people don't take the time to do the background check. They just share. And that's why this stuff continues to be spread. So how exactly will this work, what you're trying to accomplish? Uh, you're right. People need to stop sharing. <laughs> that's one thing that we need to do. And, uh, you know, we live in this really chaotic information environment Um and so one of the things that we hope this will do is it will flood it will flood social media with the good content and there's research that suggests that that is needed you know we need the the engaging shareable science informed content to be out there um, so in order to balance uh, against the the misinformation that is there um, and, and look we've talked about this before <laughs> you know Canadians want to be accurate 
you know, they don't want to share misinformation. There's evidence that, that backs that up. So if we can just give them the content that you know, satisfies their, their curiosity, we're hopeful that we can you know, make a dent in the spread of misinformation. This is a really complex problem, and this is just one tool that we need, but there's evidence to suggest it can work. Tim, I'm wondering, you know, we've got an extra couple minutes. I'm wondering if we can take a quick commercial break and just spend a couple more minutes with you. Do you have that sort of time? For sure. Excellent. That is Tim Caulfield, Research Director, Health Law Institute, University of Alberta. 848 on the morning news. Uh, more with Tim Caulfield, Research Director with the Health Law Institute, University of Alberta, part of At Science Up First. So, Tim, can you break down how it works? Because we were on the website. It sounds brilliant. You have, All you need is a social media account. And you want people to, to share the info that they see. Is that right? Uh, that's right. And, and, you know, we want this to be more than just a, a campaign that, that counters misinformation. We really want to create a movement, right? We want people to feel like they're part of something. It's a fantastic community in, in Canada, this, this uh, go science community, as I always like to, like to call it. So we really, we really want to create a community. So all, and we want to make it easy for people to join. So all they need to do is, is you know, use their favorite social media account, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and, and go, uh, go follow, follow our, our feed and share the good content. And they were also hopeful in the near future that we're going to be able to answer specific questions that people might have so we're going to monitor we're going to monitor the misinformation that's that's spreading and make you know great content that they can use uh, whether they have questions themselves or they want to share it with their family or our people in their community that people can share further we want we, you know, we want to get you know tens of thousands of people involved in this in this campaign. I love it, Tim, because, you know, the information that we then will be sharing from you has been vetted by experts. And as you said, 7,000 science-focused members helping to make sure that the information you guys are putting out, therefore what we would share, is right on the money, it's accurate, and it's believable. That's right. And and the other thing that we're going to have on on the website, and and this is coming soon, (laughs) this is coming soon, is, you know, resources that people can turn to. I get this question almost daily, you know, who can I trust? You know, what's the best place to go? And we want to have sort of a one-stop shop that people can go to and say, okay, this is is trustworthy. I, I can share this and I can use this to answer my own questions. Tim, nobody wants to repeat themselves, but we have found from the radio station perspective that, for example, we have the infectious disease specialist on, and we say, okay, help us myth bust this. Uh, you know, the flu cases are being counted as COVID-19 cases. The infectious disease specialist says, no, that's not the case. And uh, we, we think we've done our due diligence. And a week or two later, people text in and they say, the flu is being counted as COVID-19. So I think the repetition in the case of COVID-19 and information is super important, isn't it? It, it is really important. And, you know, the problem with social media is it plays to our cognitive biases, right? You know, whether it's, you know, confirmation bias, you know, looking for things that confirm, confirm our preconceived notions, or whether it's what you're just describing this with called availability bias. If you just see it enough, it feels true. So we want to we want to get the truth out there so people see it enough and so they recognize it and and they don't believe the misinformation. But look, we know we know we're not going to change the world overnight. This is just one tool, right, to fight this complex battle. Okay, here is the ultimate question. Somebody just texted, "Okay, so what are the credentials of this new panel that wants to stop information? How can I trust at Science First? 
Yeah, it's it's a great question, and and I invite people to go to the website and see the incredible team that that we've put together, and it's very interdisciplinary. So we have infectious disease experts, we have epidemiologists, we have science communicator experts. Um, it's a really wonderful, diverse team for, from all across the country, uh, and and it's both in French uh, and in English, and we want to start using other languages too, and we want to make sure and we involve the indigenous community. And we want to make sure that the content is is both um, accurate, uh, but also easily understandable and easily shareable for every platform. Tim, thank you so much for your time this morning. We're going to send people to scienceupfirst.com where there's all the links to the social media. Thank you very much. Thanks for the support, guys. Tim Caulfield, Research Director of the Health Law Institute from the University of Alberta. 709 on the morning news. Recent uh, events in the U.S. have caused Canadians to re-examine the way we handle racism and hate speech through social media. Mohamed Hashem is the executive director of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation and joins us now with details on a new poll that suggests Canadians support more government crackdown on these issues. Good morning to you, Mohamed. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for, for spending time with us this morning. Let's talk about this poll. Can you give us some idea of this setup, like how many Canadians were polled, um, you know, uh, what their background was, and, and what sorts of questions were asked? So we polled 2,000 Canadians across the country. It was The poll was conducted by Advocates Data, and it has a margin of error of maybe 2 to 3% uh, in total. But what um, some of the findings that we found to be the most staggering was uh, first of all, the awareness. Um, we asked people what their experiences of, of uh, their online experiences were, were like, and we found you know a significant amount of people had either seen or um, experienced directly um, you know hate and even violence, inciting violence um, online. There was you know when we polled people, forty two percent of people had said that they had actually seen comments or content that were inciting violence. Uh, there were, you know, like 47 of them seeing racist comments or content, offensive name calling, 50%, uh, physical threats, you know, like 32%. People of racialized, uh, racialized Canadians are twice as likely to get um, uh, physical threats online. Um, so we've found, we found some really staggering evidence to say um, the experience of the people online uh, is harmful and that there is a need for them for government to be able to, you know, bring some kind of order into this environment. Mohammed, one of the ones that, uh, one of the, the stats I found really interesting, you know, we I guess probably most of us have a love-hate relationship with social media, but we're on there, right? But the majority yeah. of Canadians really do believe that the feds have an obligation to, to regulate or try to prevent the spread of that hateful and racist rhetoric. And only 17% don't want any government involvement there. So I found that quite interesting. You know, back in the days, maybe five years ago, we would just say, don't read the comments. And that would have been enough to have, you know, your online viewing and, and experience to be relatively safe. But now those comments are everywhere. Mm-hmm. There's pages, there's, there's, you know, when we, even when I talk to journalists, uh, female journalists, I, it's the amount of hate that they receive is oh, yeah. just unbelievable. And, um, and, you know, I think it's just, we've almost, to be frank, normalized the environment to have that. Um, and I think that's disturbing to people. People are really concerned. 60% of them said, yeah, flat out, we just want to get it done. 23% said, okay, let's take a look at it uh, and let's examine, you know, we're not unsure of, of where we want the government to be. And only 17% said no. 
And even when we look at the divide between the left and the right, there was significant consensus to make for the government to do um, to take action on this. Mohammed, Canadians have opinions on this topic. Your poll tells us that. But I'm wondering, and as devil's advocate, um, some people might say, well, what the heck can the government do? Because the same reasons that, you know, people hide behind their keyboard and can say some nasty things to, to all groups in our society, they've got that anonymity. Do you have any uh, idea of what government could do to be effective in this arena? Well, first and foremost, we have hate speech laws in Canada. And, you know, they're, they're, they've been around for, for many, many years. And to be honest, what is disturbing is that if somebody says something with their voice, and it's recorded, and there's evidence of such, you know, like there is a good possibility that somebody could get charged with hate speech. Mm-hmm. But, the, but when you type it out mm-hmm. on your computer, people feel completely free to do whatever they want to. And, I, and, and with that anonymity creates this environment where people can just do whatever they want. And, and part of what we're suggesting or have asked Canadians about in terms of solutions for this is, you know, whether social media has the right or should government mandate social media to provide information to police uh, for people who are anonymously putting violent threats on there for a potential attacker to come out? No one's saying if you write something offensive that that should be notified to the police. No one cares about that. I've had thousands of comments in the last day, you know, calling me horrible different things. I don't care about that. <laughs> but what I care about is violence. Yeah. And I care and I think that social media companies have to be able to provide like if they're going to provide the platform that is inciting violence, then they have the re- responsibility to ensure that that platform is safe as well. And it sure seems that it, it has gotten worse over the past few years and, and perhaps even the past four years. And we can maybe look to, you know, partially responsible what's been going on south of the border. But, you know, I, I think all of us probably get some of that on social media. But as you mentioned, racialized groups who make up, you know, but what, 20% of the Canadian population, certainly getting even more of it, I would imagine. And, and your survey showed that. Oh, yeah. I mean, racialized Canadians are getting three times more, much more racism, like, like actually experiencing racist comments online uh, rather than non-Canadians. But just to, just to go back to what you were saying, I think, you know, over the last four years, there's been a loss of civility yeah. <laughs> in yeah. terms of what we expect the public discourse to hold. There's been a loss of an understanding of truth um, and what the expectation of truth should be or shouldn't be. And I think that that, like, that has led to a lot of polarity and unfairly. I, I think uh, that like, we, we looked at when we look at the public square and think that you know, everybody has an equal opportunity for, for, uh, for, for their opinion. We base that on the fact that everyone is kind of agreeing with the same set of knowledge or the same set of truth. Um, and what's happening, like what's happened over the last four years is that, you know, with all those like fake news accusations and, and whatnot, people just don't know what to believe in. And that's just given rise to so much disinformation and polarization and hate. Mohammed, this is a global issue, obviously, as particularly as we do more and more online and with social media. So I'm wondering if we can look to any other countries who have, who have done it right and had that balance between censorship and, of course, putting the brakes on um, hate speech, uh, racism, and, and threats of violence. Do we have any, you know, that we can follow as, as a good example? Well, I mean, there's lots of examples. I don't know about good examples. I think this is a new environment, to be honest. Mm-hmm. This is a very difficult thing for people to legislate because nobody wants to impede free speech. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants that. I don't want that. Um, but what I want to make sure is that 
uh, is that, you know, government looks at this with a really, really clear lens to ensure free speech is protected, but that we're also ensuring that the platforms that, that are out there are doing their responsibility uh, and ensuring that the, the environment that they're creating and providing to people who, who are using their, their platforms is a safe one. And, you know, we, there's, other, there's other countries like Australia and, and Germany who have brought different laws in together. And, you know, it's, it's, it's about tinkering at this point because, you know, some laws will come and they're going to work, some are not going to come into work. But this is a really new environment, and I think people are trying to figure out what the best solution is because everybody is really cognizant of not trying to impede free speech. Such an important discussion. Thanks for bringing your poll to us. Appreciate it this morning. Thanks so much for having me. That is Mohamed Hashem, Canadian Race Relations Foundation Executive Director. Jean-Francois Menard is one of the world's top mental performance coaches, helping Olympians, professional athletes, musicians, and corporate leaders reach their highest potential. Now a best-selling author, radio personality, and accomplished speaker who travels the globe. We're joined this morning by Jean-Francois Menard. Good morning, JF. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Okay, I'm looking at your book. uh, There's so many people who have given you testimonials to say how helpful you've been to them. And I think, you know, not many of us, obviously, at this point, probably going to be professional athletes. But when you can talk to people about, you know, coaching a team, whether you're in the corporate world or the sports world, I think then that really starts to connect everybody. So talk to us a little bit about this connection between mentally training athletes and corporate leaders. Totally. Well, you know the main dominator between uh, between the two uh, between elite sport and the workplace is that the brain is the motor to performance. Uh, if you think of an athlete, an Olympic athlete who's getting ready to compete at the Olympics, you know they're all physically trained, they're all technically trained as well. But it's the ones who are able to manage themselves the best, like to manage the pressure, to manage the stress, the anxiety of the moment, that are going to perform at their best. Well, I would argue in the workplace, it's the same thing. Like, you can be very smart. You can have all the knowledge in the world. But if you can't manage yourself in a stressful moment, like getting ready to give a presentation or having a tough conversation with with a colleague or a client, um, you're not going to be able to access the smart part of your brain. So being mentally tough is just as important if you're, you know, an alpine skier who is just about to ski 130 kilometers an hour down a hill or someone at work that uh, has a very, you know, heavy workload, busy day, and needs to be focused all day. So that's why I wrote this book, is to make people understand that mental performance coaching is, um, is not only in sport, but can be used by anyone who wants to be a little bit more efficient and productive in whatever they're doing. Jean-Francois, I want to talk to you about the fact that, you know, to have success at your level... Uh, you you have to be a dynamic person. You have to have that personality and, uh, you know, very much connect with the subjects you're working with when it comes to coaching and motivating. So I'm wondering, taking that from in person and the success you've had and putting it in the pages of a book, tell us about those challenges so it translates and is still effective without you being there in the room with someone. That wasn't easy to do, <laughs> I've got to say. And that's why I, I got the help of a sports journalist to help me write the book because I'm a speaker. You know, I like to talk. I'm not, I'm not a writer. And um, it was it was quite the, the feat, but uh, I think we came up with something that was pretty good. And the goal of the book was to make it very practical because a lot of these books out there um, sometimes are a little bit too theoretical and it's difficult for people to connect with these things. So I, write it, I wrote it in a way that I'm speaking to the reader. So you feel like you're in my office. And I even added a lot of diagrams, a lot of visuals, that I would draw on my whiteboard in my office if someone was with me here, 
um, to support some of these things that, um, that I'm explaining in the book. Because in the end, human beings are visual learners. Um, and we know this specifically in sport. We see the coaches drawing stuff on a board, you know, drawing a play, making sure it's clear. Um, we're all like that. We all learn visually. So uh, my goal is to make it very, very tangible, very practical. So it's, it's filled with strategies and tools, lots of storytelling. And uh, the feedback we've been getting until now has been great. So I'm very happy that this book came out at this time, especially specifically in COVID times, given that people uh, have a hard time with uh, staying focused, being resilient, and mm-hmm. being motivated. Let's make sure they know the title. It's called Train Your Brain Like an Olympian, Gold Medal Techniques to Unleash Your Potential at Work. So this is your latest book out today. And it, let's bring it back to, to sort of everyday folks who maybe are, are, are working from home these days. How do you keep your productivity, your motivation up when you're you know, no longer at the office and, and just kind of sitting at home, maybe at your dining room table? Right. Well, there's a lot of answers to that question. The one thing I would say is um, be mindful of your environment and to make sure that you limit the distractions around you. As we know, a lot of people right now are working from home and they're using Zoom calls you know, to connect with colleagues and clients and, and people in the workplace. Um, but if you have your phone beside you uh, that's indicating text messages or notifications coming in from social media, you have the, you know, the TV playing behind you. You can hear the kids in the other room. I mean, anyone would be distracted in an environment like that. So put the phone aside. And, you know, some people forget that we can actually turn that phone off. What? You know, and put it, <laughs> turn it off, put it in, in a drawer. Things are still going to come in. And whenever you have a break, then you can become aware of what's on your phone. But is it really necessary to have it right beside your computer? And, and guys, you know, we see the people online where you see the eyes going from left to right, left to right. We know they're distracted. So be mindful of that. And the second thing I would say is take breaks. Don't wait until you're about to break to take a break because you're too late. You know, you know after an hour, an hour and a half, your brain needs a little five or ten minutes to get away. So stand up, go take a walk, you know, uh, do some yoga poses, call a friend, grab a snack, do something to disconnect so you can reconnect properly. Um, So I, I would share that with people listening to us this morning just as a few tips to help them be a little bit more productive. We're talking about the motivation and, and remaining productive working from home in, in that aspect. But I'm wondering, Jean-Francois, we're over three weeks into the new year. A lot of people had those New Year's resolutions set on December 31st. You flash forward to the 26th of January. They've kind of gone into the ether. So I'm wondering what you can say to someone who, who had a New Year's resolution and didn't launch it. The motivation, you know, how can we self-motivate, um, you know, when it's something we've never done before? Totally. Isn't it ironic that so many people at the end of 2020 couldn't wait for 2020 to be done and to start 2021? Like, like if on January 1st, everything would have changed, you know, and <laughs> surprise, surprise, we're still in the same situation. Um, you know, New Year's resolution, um, they make me chuckle a little bit because we can actually set goals anytime during the year. And it's just funny that a lot of people try to do this at the beginning of the year and, and think of the, what I would say the best strategy is think of minimums. You know, what's the minimum of something positive you can do that can have an impact? So, for instance, like for someone who says, I'm going to start doing some exercise. Well, going from zero uh, exercise sessions a week to five times a week, you might last a week or two or maybe three. But at some point, you know, you're, you're going to fail. The reason is, if your intention is to do five, but you do three workouts, I mean, three workouts is better than none, right? But if your intention is five, you're a failure. So I would encourage people to think about like, okay, if I've never exercised before, what if I just do one session this next week? 
And that's more realistic. It's a minimal goal. You do that, so therefore, it's a success. And if you do two sessions, well, that's a bonus. And don't go from one to five. Go from maybe two or three weeks, one session a week, then bump it up to two, maybe to three. But anything that we build gradually is much more difficult to get rid of. Everything we gain quickly, we can lose quickly as well. So that would be a tip I give for... uh, at this point in the year that we're, we're in right now. And that's that whole train your brain, right? So it makes sense. Teachable skills that ha- can help people reach their full potential. Thanks so much for joining us, JF. Thanks for having me, guys. That is Jean-Francois Menard, performance coach and author. His new book out today, Train Your Brain Like an Olympian.